I have noticed in life that people are particularly receptive to the words of those who have remarkable traits or have shown a remarkable characteristic. This past week, if you follow the news at all, you saw or read that the Ukrainian president Zelensky was doing his video world tour. He spoke to the U.S. Congress, I believe it was on Wednesday, about the situation and the needs in his country. He spoke to the Canadian Parliament. He spoke to various European governments and leaders as well. He spoke and people listened. They listened intently. They listened personally. They listened emotionally. And rarely in recent years has a foreign leader so captivated an audience, spoken with such credibility to such a large group of people. And the question that we ask is why? Why does anyone pay attention to anyone else when they have such words to say? What is it that makes someone's passable English riveting to hear? I submit to you that it is related to the courage that most people see that he has shown. News reports tell us that he has stayed in the capital city of Kiev, a besieged capital, a bombed country, and that he has remained uncowed, fearless, with resolve, all of which is no small act if we put ourselves in his shoes. To be willing to die for your people and to stand for your principles is hard to ignore. There aren't all that many people who would do so today. Therefore, people the world over, as we've just seen, will give you their ears. People are receptive to your words based upon some remarkable trait that you have shown. For President Zelensky, I believe that has to do with his courage. But today we're going to see another far more remarkable person who fostered receptivity to his words. And for that man, Jesus the Christ, the text of scripture indicates that it is because of his power. What Jesus could do in the lives of people gave him credibility to be heard in the ears of people. We find that story in Luke chapter 6. I'd invite you to turn there in your Bibles. Luke chapter 6 in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. We have hosts and hostesses who would love to put a copy of the scriptures in your hand. We want you to read along. You can also follow along online. You can take notes in your worship program in your hand or gracepolaris.org slash program to follow along there. Luke chapter 6. Luke 6. Today we begin the stretch run in our winter series, Up Close and Personal, from Luke's Gospel, Looking at the Life of Jesus. And I want to say a special thanks. Uh, in a couple of weeks, in the last uh, few, uh, Pastor Jonathan and Pastor Dave, who spoke on these passages in Luke's gospel. Now, I can assure you before we begin today that there will not be any stories about dead rodents. <laughs> and if you don't know what I mean, apparently you weren't here last week, but you can feel free to ask anyone because I'm almost certain that they'll be able to recount that story word for word. Today, instead, we're going to be exploring one of Jesus's more noteworthy and most challenging teachings, Luke chapter 6. Now, there are a number of ways that we could have entitled this sermon and this passage. I thought of a few. We could have called it invested living or upside down living or blessing in disguise or living with the end in mind 
or descending into joy. The list goes on. But in the end, I think the best way to highlight what Jesus is teaching here is what one of our pastors said this week, life with kingdom glasses. Jesus is inviting us in to see with his perspective, to see as the king sees, sees God, sees the world, sees others, sees themselves, most of all sees Jesus. Jesus is showing, teaching a revolutionary way, the way of the king of seeing and living life. And we find that in Luke chapter 6. I'm going to invite you to stand in honor of the word of God. We do this often here at Grace, and I'm going to read our passage. It's uh, entitled Blessings and Woes in my Bible. I'm reading from the NIV, Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 17, down to verse 26. The word of God says, he, Jesus, went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. This is God's word. Thanks for standing. You may be seated. This teaching here in Luke chapter 6 is the first section of three weeks on the Sermon on the Plain from Luke chapter 6. And if these verses, if this passage sounds strikingly familiar but a little bit different, the reason is they are. Most of us are at some level familiar with Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapters 5 to 7, typically called the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew, of course, it takes up three chapters. In Luke here, it takes up just the better part of one chapter. This is Luke's summary of Jesus' well-known sermon. And yet many of the themes that are true in Matthew, where we might be more familiar, are also true in Luke. Countercultural perspectives that we call the Beatitudes. We just read them. Instructions on love. Look, look along there in Luke chapter 6. Uh, talk of enemies. What it means to judge. What fruitfulness is all about. Where our foundation in life ought to be. Jesus is the master at saying memorable, important things in really concise, pithy ways. Now, for just a moment before we dive in here, it's worth addressing the unique nature of Luke's account, particularly in comparison or contrast to Matthew's. Many people have read this 
and concluded it's the same sermon, just with different descriptions of geography. Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain. And many of them think that Luke's was perhaps the more original version and Matthew pieced together other things that Jesus taught in his three years and uh, added them to what became the Sermon on the Mount. That's possible. Another conclusion is that Matthew and Luke in their own way simply pieced together various strands of Jesus' teaching uh, during a certain time or maybe even during his years of public ministry and put them together in a package and called it the Sermon on the and pick your geography. I think that's less likely. A third option, the one I think is most likely, is that both of these writers are summarizing the core teachings of Jesus in this phase of his ministry. That the closest approximation I can come up with is to say that this was like Jesus' stump speech. You've heard politicians before who on multiple occasions are saying roughly the same thing. Many of the same themes varied to the setting and to the audience. I think in many ways, that's what we find here. Jesus may have given this stump speech on multiple occasions, but there was a certain core to it that both Luke and Matthew picked up. Regardless, we know that this is an authentic rendition of what Jesus taught. Now, back in New Testament times, 2,000 years ago, their standards for citations, for quotations, aren't, weren't near as stringent as ours are today. What is inspired by God is not necessarily all of the words that any one person said, including Jesus, but what the gospel writers recorded and summarized. That means that if you have a red letter edition of the Bible, and the one I have here happens to be, we need to give a pause when we think that those red letters mean more than they do. What matters in our Bibles is not the color of the typeface. What matters is whether it's in there or not. And if it's in there, it is fully inspired and authoritative by the hand of God. That's our background. Let's turn to the text itself here. In these 10 verses, we see something about the context and the content and the compelling rationale that Jesus gives his followers. Let's start with the context here, what we might call in your outline the magnetism of Jesus. The magnetism of Jesus, verses 17 to 19. I've been to Israel before, and I'm eager to be back there, and that will occur in 10 days. I'll be joined by nine others from Grace and about uh, 25 additional people. And I really wish that I could smuggle some of you in my suitcase on the way over there. Being in Israel is an eye-opening, uh, colorful experience to see the Bible come to light in new ways. I'm especially excited this time to be accompanied by my father. He just turned 80 years old, but he's in good health and mobile. And so we're going to have the time of our lives as he, a student of the scriptures, for the first time gets to see where so much of it happened. On my first and only trip to Israel a few years ago with some of you, we visited um, a number of places. One of those was the Sea of Galilee region, almost certainly where Jesus gave this particular message. Luke calls it a level plain. Matthew refers to it as a mountain. And you see the picture there. Uh, if you were there and got the panoramic view, you would see how someone might be able to call it a mountain of sorts. And someone else would say, no, it's a, it's a plain, it's a grassy area. It's a level field. 
Some of that has to do with our perspectives. You know, I might look at Southeast Ohio and call it hilly. I might go to West Virginia and call it mountainous. But if you've lived in the Rockies or the Alps, you go, ah, there are a few bumps in the landscape. In any case, what we have here is a sloping region from the hills around the Sea of Galilee down to the water's edge. Matthew refers to the Sermon on the Mount, a mount of sorts up in the hills. Luke calls it the Sermon on the Plain, as you just saw in the picture. Either way, they're describing an address that Jesus gives with similar and profound themes. Now for Luke, the the element of context most important is the size and the diversity of the crowd. Look there, verse 17. This was a large crowd with a great volume of people. These weren't just the 12 that Jesus had selected. Look a few verses earlier. These included dozens more who had aligned themselves with Jesus as one of his disciples and probably hundreds, maybe thousands more who were hangers on. They were curious. They were intrigued about this magnificent man named Jesus. They wanted to join his teaching tour. Jesus, remember, by this point had become a rock star. He was a Pied Piper. And where he was and what he did and what he said, you wanted to be there to take it in. Everyone wanted to hear him. And people came from all over to get the chance. Luke Luke describes here people who came from several coastal cities, which would have been 30 to 50 miles away. Some of those were not regarded as part of the Israelites, part of God's chosen people, but they came to hear Jesus anyway. Luke highlights that there were other people who came from Jerusalem and Judea. Look at the text there. That's at least 75 miles away. And we have to understand that in a day where you moved either with your feet or with animals, this was not around the corner. You had to be really determined that you needed to hear and see this man And to spend days, if not weeks, in the transport there and back and overnighting and such. Jesus was quite a teacher. People were desperate to be with him. But it wasn't just the teaching of Jesus that they sought. The text makes that clear here. There were many, many people who wanted to come in contact with Jesus' healing power. Luke speaks of those who had physical maladies and diseases, whether they were blind or lame or had some other disability that hindered them in life. But Luke also speaks of those who were demonized, who were oppressed by evil spirits. These are people who mentally, psychologically were tortured in some way. And that kind of situation has been true throughout time. Jesus, in many ways, seemed to draw that out by his presence in the Gospels. Luke notes here that, quote, the people all tried to touch him and that Jesus was healing them all, verse 19. I'm not sure if this is a generalization from Luke, the the fact that many were healed there, Or if Luke is speaking absolutely, quite literally, that every last person who sought healing received it. We almost get that impression, don't we? What's undeniable in any case is that there were masses of individuals who were desperate to see their need fixed. Physical, psychological, or a combination between the two. And when they came to Jesus, he healed them. It must have been quite an occasion. We read this 
other intriguing phrase that power was coming from him. Again, I want the video. What's that mean? It's kind of like the force that was with Jesus. And wherever he was, if you could be near him, if you could touch him, then you would be healed. You would be restored from whatever keeps you down. My, my 21st century imagination goes wild here thinking that it's kind of like Wi-Fi. You know, if you got enough in range, did the power somehow leak into you so that what you needed was done? I don't know. The Bible speaks here of the particular importance of touch. People were crowding around Jesus. They wanted to touch his body. They wanted to touch his clothing because somehow through it, they found power. We don't know a number of the speculative questions, how long it lasted, how far the range went, who all received the healing benefits. There are questions that Matthew and Luke don't explicitly answer. Here's what we do know. Many were there. Many sought healing. Many received it. It it was an ecstatic environment. People were beside themselves in joy and relief because this one could heal them. We already pointed out that this was a diverse group. These are people that may not have normally chosen to associate with each other. But when Jesus was the draw, they were willing to be around each other, languages, cultural backgrounds, preferences, customs, because he could do for them what all of them needed. Jesus was the star. If you've ever been with kids to some kind of party where there was a pinata, the the, the moment comes in which the pinata breaks and all of the sudden, all of the benefits spill out for everyone who's been seeking them. This here is a pinata moment where Jesus' power shows benefit to all who are seeking and they with joy experience it. You think he had their attention? You think they were willing to listen? Here's their existential savior in their midst. Here's the one who was captivating, who was their wonder worker, who had power. And yet Jesus has purposes beyond their perceptions. Jesus is showing his power and his appeal in verses 17, 18, and 19 so that he can assert his truth and his claims beginning in verse 20. And to there we turn the substance of his message, the message of Jesus beginning in verse 20. Francis Schaeffer about 50 years ago wrote a rather remarkable groundbreaking book called How Should We Then Live? And Jesus answers that question 2,000 years before our time. Those who know Jesus, those who have access to his power, those who are able to see with his eyes, those who understand his ethic, they live like this. And Jesus now fleshes out what that looks like. We call them the Beatitudes. One author said the Beatitudes of Jesus are among the literary and religious treasures of the human race. Along with the Ten Commandments, the 23rd Psalm, the Lord's Prayer, and very few other passages in the Bible, the Beatitudes are acknowledged by almost everyone to be among the highest expressions of religious insight and moral inspiration. But then he says we can savor them, we can affirm them, we can meditate on them, we can engrave them on plaques that we hang on the wall. But the major question remains, how are we to live in response 
to the Beatitudes. It's hard to improve on what one of our good study Bibles in our day says, the NIV Zondervan study Bible. The Beatitudes disclose God's gracious favor toward his followers for traits that are opposite of what usually garners acclaim and popularity. What we read in the Beatitudes causes us to do a double take because we recognize the world doesn't operate that way. These things from Jesus are countercultural. They're upside down. They're otherworldly. They are a set of glasses from heaven that sees a fallen earthly world in brand new ways. These are kingdom reversals. This is how the king sees life. Look there, the first thing that we notice jumping off the page is this repeated declaration of blessed and later woe in the Beatitudes. What's that mean? Blessed. It's the same word that Matthew uses in the Sermon on the Mount. In some translations, it's it's, uh, dubbed uh, happy or fortunate or even flourishing. Blessed describes a a state of well-being with God for followers of Jesus. This word, blessedness or blessing, was actually used back in ancient times to describe the blissful existence of the Greek gods. In that sense, it's not all that far removed from what we sometimes hear when people talk about nirvana. This state of ecstasy, this state of of bliss that is somehow removed from the trials and the difficulties of life. The difference in the New Testament, the difference in Christian faith is that we're not removed from the trials and difficulties of life, but within them, our eyes and our lives can transcend them. See the difference? It's not escape, it's transformation. These characteristics reflect the king and those who are aligned to him. This teaching must have stopped the hearers in their tracks. Remember, they were giddy. They were ecstatic. They were thrilled by what Jesus did. And then Jesus, out of his mouth, utters things that make absolutely no sense to them. Right and left, Jesus is healing people. Jesus is the jackpot that they have hit. And then he turns around to explain to them a way of thinking, a way of living, a way of acting that doesn't add up in life. And even if it seems so attractive and appealing, it seems so incredible and impossible. We love what you do, Jesus. Thank you for coming. What in the world do you mean? The woes, on the other hand, beginning in verse 24, are a a declaration of pain and pity for those who have the misfortune of not aligning themselves, not being connected to Jesus. These are warnings here. This is a warning about the coming judgment of God rather than his blessing because what you now experience is illusory. It will not remain. What you think you've cornered will escape your grasp in due time. Now it's important for us as we read these Beatitudes to remember this, the Beatitudes are not conditions for entering the kingdom of God. Become these things and God might check your box. No. Rather, the blessings are pronounced on those who have already entered. In other words, Jesus is not saying here, 
in this sermon, this is how you become a Christian. Rather, this is what marks someone who is already experiencing God's grace. The gospel of Jesus Christ is presupposed. Connection to Jesus is presupposed here. These are people who have experienced the new birth, who who will experience the presence of the Holy Spirit. These are people who rely on Jesus in their lives. People who otherwise are spiritual zeros, who are bankrupt, who don't have anything to offer God, but nonetheless have received the blessing and the grace of God and therefore experience and demonstrate these characteristics in their lives. These are people who lean completely on Jesus for salvation and then who demonstrate this with their lives. With that background, let's look specifically at the actual blessings and woes that Jesus contrasts here. We'll toggle back and forth between the blessing and the woe. First one, poverty versus wealth. Verse 20, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But verse 24, but woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Jesus looks at his disciples. He pronounces blessing on them because they're poor and they knew it. Not just that they were materially poor. That was true too but that they were spiritually poor apart from him. And that's implicit in the word. They were spiritually poor. Matthew says it explicitly, poor in spirit. You've heard that phrase. Back in Jewish society, in in much of that day, if you were materially blessed, it was an indication to everyone that you were spiritually blessed. Those who had comfort and possessions were those upon whom God looked favorably. Comfort showed blessing, but Jesus turns that on its head. Jesus says that those who are spiritually poor, their reality, their reputation, but who align themselves with him by the grace of God are rich. In knowing the king, they partake in the kingdom. And those who don't can only be rich in this world temporarily, and then they will lose it. James, one of the early followers of Jesus, said in his letter, James 2, 5, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world? Here we are. To be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him. Indeed, he has. Now, it's not that only poor people and all poor people are spiritually rich. Not at all. Poverty, it needs to be said, is no guarantee of spiritual receptivity or brokenness. But poverty can help. If you've ever had a conversation with someone who is genuinely poor, you don't have to convince them that there's a level of helplessness they have in life. And not just in this life, perhaps, but in their anticipation of any life to come. On the other hand, it's not that wealth automatically makes one spiritually proud and stubborn. But it can fuel that. And if you have conversations with genuinely wealthy people, you know that for many of them, there's a certain put-togetherness that they assume about themselves, even spiritually, before others and God. To be candid, I've known poor people who are stubborn and greedy and proud. But poverty tends to push against that. 
And I've known rich people who are generous and humble and teachable. Some that you know, some of you. But wealth can work against that. That's why the Bible instructs us again and again not to put our trust in comfort, in wealth, in possessions, but rather to put our need before God. Here's what Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Words quite appropriate for us. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Let's push that further. Is that you? Most of us are rich compared to history, compared to the rest of the world, maybe compared to a decade or two ago in your lives. Not everyone. We don't always feel that. We have financial pressures, but comparatively speaking, this passage speaks to many of us. The question is, are you rich in good deeds? Are you generous with your money? Are you eager to share with those who have need? Paul and Jesus are saying those who truly know him will be marked by these traits. Even deeper, Jesus is saying, do you rely on me? Do you recognize your spiritual bankruptcy? Have you tasted grace? Jesus isn't saying that somehow poverty, being poor, is a state of happiness or blessing. Jesus is not saying here, I want all of you to, to give away all your possessions and empty your 401k. He's saying Recognize that you are spiritually poor apart from me and you need me desperately. And when you know him then, then you have true wealth. Second contrast, hungry versus full. Verse 21, blessed are you who hunger now for you will be satisfied. But verse 25, woe to you who are well fed now for you will go hungry. In much of history, much of the world, the pursuit of food for today and maybe for tomorrow occupies much of life, much of our minds. Hunger is a common theme in human existence. But the wealthy don't have to worry about that. They're not wondering where their next meal comes from or what this week has in the pantry or the refrigerator. They have plenty. The masses around Jesus didn't think that way. The first disciples around Jesus didn't think that way. They were familiar with hunger, but Jesus turns this on its head. Jesus teaches them that in knowing him, true satisfaction is their destiny. He's not promising them nutritional ease. He's not saying, you'll never wonder where's my next meal coming from. Many of these disciples, many of those who hung around Jesus would again and again have those concerns. Rather, Jesus is redefining what hunger really is. True hunger is a barrenness of soul. 
True hunger is sometimes masked by the filling of our bellies. Jesus says, in due time, those who are full will find out that they are empty if they don't have me. And one day, they will face hunger that they cannot address. Jesus speaks of those who are spiritually hungry, like his disciples, who are honest about their own need and who choose to align themselves with Jesus because they know that they will taste and see that the Lord is good. They will be satisfied. The things that they feel like they lack in the present will be satisfied in due time because their ultimate satisfaction is Jesus Christ. He's the answer for barrenness of soul. Third contrast, mourning versus laughing. Verse 21, blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Verse 25, woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Now, Jesus isn't talking here about personality types. We have the gamut even in this room. This is not about who's a glass half full and a glass half half empty person. Jesus is not talking about people who are particularly emotional or who express their grief easily. Jesus is talking here about those who are pained, who are sensitive to evil and wickedness and wrong and injustice in their lives and in our world. These are people who are grieved, who weep at a world gone wrong, who suffer under the weight of what they experience and what they see others experience. Have you noticed that our world is messed up? Jesus is speaking to you here. Jesus is saying that those who align themselves with him, who trust him now, will someday realize mourning turned into laughing. Will someday experience justice for the oppressed. Will someday see him right the wrongs that seem oh so wrong in our world where the weak and the marginalized and the disadvantaged and the powerless don't stay so. The mourning, the grief will someday stop. And those who align themselves with Jesus have a guarantee that they will see him do so. Fourth and finally, ridiculed versus respected. Verse 22, blessed are you when people hate you, Jesus says, when they exclude you and insult you, reject your name as evil. Well, that sounds appealing, doesn't it? Verse 26, woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, huh? For that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. This fourth, this final comparison and contrast from Jesus is about those who are persecuted and those who are protected. It's an amazing statement here that Jesus makes, almost unbelievable. He pronounces spiritual good fortune, we might say, on those who are persecuted, who are reviled, who are insulted, who are scorned as evil in this world. And Jesus warns those of high reputation, who receive the praise of those around, who are enlightened, who are on the right side of history, that they may not be. 
Jesus is saying that those who receive commendation and applause and approval will not have that forever if it's not aligned to him. And Jesus is saying that those who suffer under misunderstanding and rejection will not have that forever if they're aligned with him. Popularity at the expense of connection to Jesus is a disaster. We live in a day and age in our society where faith and religion and what we believe is, is a very private thing. Unless you choose to go public with your faith, you can hide it quite well and few will ask. But in many parts of the world, in much of history, who you align yourself with, what you believe is a very public identifier. And the very nature of who you identify with or what group you're a part of or even where you live will justify the treatment in the eyes of others of you. And you will suffer. And you will suffer. Jesus is saying here that association with him, the son of man, makes the difference. Because those who are aligned to him are and will someday be vindicated by that association. As he says elsewhere, we don't hide our light under a bush. We let it shine and he sees. Jesus says, you're not the first ones who have experienced this. The prophets of old faced rejection when they told the truth, when they lived the truth. The prophet Isaiah speaks in similar words to what Jesus says here Isaiah 65, verse 13, Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says, My servants will eat, but you will go hungry. My servants will drink, but you will go thirsty. My servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. And in similar ways, Jesus is saying that about his disciples. We conclude with the motivation for Jesus' followers. Go back to verse 22. As Jesus finishes up the blessing, and says, blessing, because of the Son of Man. This is how followers of the Son of Man live. This is how they should live. This is how they can live. And why? Why in the world would they, would we be motivated to this kind of otherworldly living? It's nothing less than our willingness to align ourselves with the Son of Man, because we know that the Son of Man will win. Jesus is saying to them and to us, when it comes to me, there is no middle ground. They're going to love you or they're going to hate you on account of me. They're going to misunderstand you and probably mistreat you and sideline you because of me. Are you okay with that? Jesus is saying, are you willing to live with me now so that you live with me in eternity and maybe suffer in the present. But if you do, these things will be true of you and you will win in the end. And then as if these blessings and woes weren't radical enough, he says one of the most remarkable, one of the most incredible statements in all of scripture, verse 23, rejoice in that day. And if that's not enough, leap for joy. Because great is your reward in heaven. Jesus is saying, listen closely, that you and I, if we align ourselves with him, should be downright giddy, ecstatic, because we belong and because we know. 
And that makes all the difference in the world in a sinful, fallen world. Jesus gives us two reasons for this kind of otherworldly joy. Number one, there will be heavenly reward. As many songs that we sing remind us, this is not our home. This is not where we belong. The world's approval is not the standard. And the second reason Jesus gives, again, is that you're not the first. Those who have aligned themselves with God, those who align themselves with God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, will experience this. You're not alone. I'm fascinated by how the first followers of Jesus, not only those to whom he spoke here, but those who heard their message, responded in the face of opposition, persecution, pushback, and condescension. Acts chapter 5, verse 41 says it like this. The apostles left the Sanhedrin, listen closely, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. That makes no sense unless Jesus makes all the sense in their lives. And he does. Jesus tells us in 2022, this is par for the course. This is what it means to live aligned to me. This is countercultural living. The, the ancestors way back in the Old Testament experienced this. Those who first followed me experienced this. As Hebrews 11 says, there were many who were heroes in the eyes of God who experienced this and were scandals and sufferers in the eyes of people. But it is worth it. These are the Beatitudes. This is what it means to overcome the world. And in that, we rejoice. We greatly rejoice. Do we rejoice? Jesus is saying to you and to me, Am I enough? The trials and difficulties that you face, even right now, am I enough? The world in which we live in that seems so topsy-turvy, am I enough? Are you willing to live with kingdom glasses and the king's heart in you? And therefore, to experience life in the present like none of them can, because you're aligned with me. Pastor in our day said, there is greater, longer lasting happiness with Jesus plus nothing than with everything minus Jesus. The happiness of everything minus Jesus is temporary and it's all over our world. The joy of Jesus plus nothing is eternal. Do we believe that? Followers of Jesus possess lasting joy because they see beyond the temporary trials of life. This is not all there is. And because we know that, we can experience joy in the here and now. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the life and the teachings of Jesus. We thank you for what he did on the cross and from the grave, but we thank you for these piercing words that hold a mirror up to us and say, do you trust me? I pray that those who are aligned with Jesus in this room would be heartened by Jesus's call to endure and call to follow. And I pray for those in this room who don't know whether they know Jesus, 
who have found him an interesting character, but can't say he's their king or master. I pray that you would bring them under conviction today that they too can align themselves with Jesus, can experience the grace of God and can know that what they experience now points to the future and hope in God. Encourage our hearts, Lord, and captivate our spirits with you. In Jesus' name, amen.